Welcome to the TCO Method, the only show focused on helping you massively increase your net operating income. I am Andy McQuaid, and thank you so much for joining me for this second episode, right? Second official episode of the TCO Method. Today, we are going to focus on saying the quiet part out loud. And there's a few of them in real estate, right? There's a few of them in construction, but the one I want to talk about is the one that is sort of my pet peeve. Um, and I'm going to apologize in advance again. This is the third actual episode of the TCO method. First one was a sneak preview. Second one was two cars, no brains. And this one is going to be focused on saying the quiet part out loud, which uh, should be interesting, but probably won't make me a lot of friends. Um, so with that, we'll get right into it. The quiet part that I want to talk about that everybody sort of needs to be aware of is a little complicated, but not really complicated. So I spent the vast majority of my career on the supply side of construction and, and property management, um, doing and working with uh, procurement operations for builders and whatever. So I was a sales guy, right? Long story short. And a part of what I noticed in the later part of my career, as I was working more with the operations, maintenance, and management of properties, they had a lot of things that were caused by decisions made years prior. And it was costing money because they decided to pick product or service or whatever XYZ during construction or remodeling, renovation, whatever you wanted to call it. And it wasn't necessarily the best fit for the use of that property, right? So there's a lot of talk in modern procurement and purchasing now about highest and best use, most value to the company. But the reality is that the the priorities of the construction company, the remodeler, the renovator are not the same as the priorities of the operator of a multifamily commercial property or an office building or whatever. So a lot of times decisions are made so that they can come in on time and under budget, which means that the product has to meet whatever specs are laid out by the architect at the beginning of the project, which is a whole nother thing that we'll talk about because architect specifications just, I did it for a year working with, you know, really high end commercial architecture shops across the country in some of the biggest cities servicing some of the biggest national clients. And I can tell you right now that the architect is not always in it for the customer or their benefit and they're not always in it for um the tenant and what the best use is going to be 
for a space. So there's there's graft and there's bribery and there's money that changes hands and kickbacks and librarians in some of these huge places that want to get paid to put products into a spec to put them out for the architects to pick from in the libraries. There's yeah, there's just there's just a lot of very unfortunate things that happen with some of these larger firms that I was completely oblivious to until I actually had a sales team going into these offices and working with some of these places. And, you know, six months in when we had a librarian basically say, hey, I want 5% of whatever it is that gets sold into this job. If I recommend your product, I was like, oh, what? <laughs> it freaking blew my mind. Um, needless to say, we didn't do that because that's a, a huge issue. But um, as a product manufacturer and, and supplier, I was like, wait, this is actually a thing? Oh, I explained so much, so much about why bad decisions are made. But in any event, there's this thing that I call race to the bottom, right? And this is the quiet part being said out loud. The reality is that the builders and contractors that are working on these projects are interested in a couple of things. Com completing it on time and making it look pretty to whatever the customer's expectations are because that's where most of their headaches come in. And the second thing is they want to make sure that it lasts for whatever the duration of the warranty is that they offer. If it's a one-year warranty, two-year warranty, 90-day warranty, no warranty, they don't want to own it after whatever the workmanship warranty is that they put on that project. Okay? Which means that your average tenant, and we're talking in multifamily right now, your average tenant is going to stay in a unit for maybe two or three years, and then you'll get to update and refresh, but you're not going to do a full turn, most likely, unless there's damages, for somewhere in the five, seven to ten year mark. Obviously, the longer you can go without a massive renovation cost on your capital expenditures, the better. But there are certain, we'll call them bones in these units, that don't need to get refreshed every time you go in and update the paint colors and the carpet and the countertops and the cabinets and light fixtures or whatever it is you're doing. So the quiet part out loud is that we literally incentivize the builders and contractors that we hire to do these projects, whether it's new construction, renovation, doesn't matter. We're paying them to put the cheapest junk they can put in that will last for as long as their warranty lasts, and that's it. Unless you specifically give them the exact product choices and selections that they have to use for the project with no substitutions, they will find a way to put a less expensive product in that does the same job, but that helps them come in under budget. Why? A bunch of reasons. Number one, because stepping over dollars to pick up pennies is not their problem, right? I've seen operators do this too, right? Big multifamily operators, over 10,000 doors under management, and they would rather put stuff in that starts to have issues after three years and then pay their guys to go into these apartments 
and maintain them and operate them and do whatever it is to keep them functioning the way they're supposed to, or just let them run endlessly and just use utilities and cost the company more money, as opposed to paying extra money at the beginning of the project during a rehab to do it right. So it takes all kinds, and I'm not judging. Everybody has their own reasons why they do things, but I do question the logic if you're going to own and operate a property long term, why you would choose to put something in that you know will have problems, that you know will cost you more, and that you know you probably won't change again for 10 to 15 years. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't know that it makes a lot of sense to a lot of people when you put the numbers on paper. I think it just doesn't seem to make sense. So my advice is to avoid choices like that, right? This brings in the whole two cars, no brains conversation from the last episode. And yes, I am talking about the two cars, no brains situation, but we're going to put it more specifically into this race to the bottom conversation that we're having. So we pay project managers to come in under budget and on time. We pay construction companies to come in on time and within scope. Construction companies pay their project managers to come in under budget. And depending on how far under budget they come in, they get a bonus nine times out of 10. So we're accepting and incentivizing bad behavior at the fundamental root level of the industry because we're directly tying compensation to cutting corners and calling it good performance. There is something called value engineering that gets thrown around a lot by both building materials providers and by builders, construction companies, GCs, subcontractors, whatever you want to call it. If there's labor and materials involved, they will pitch this value engineering thing to their clients. Now, the problem with value engineering isn't that it exists. It's that nine times out of 10, especially in the last, call it five to 10 years, they will value engineer all the value out to secure a low price. So what's the problem with that? Well, for example, we used to have a, a customer of mine back when I was working at the lumberyard who insisted on value engineering all the truss packages for these homes. And they're putting 716 SOSB on the roof and they would insist that the trusses on the roof would be spaced two foot on center and value engineered so that they met code. But they didn't care if that plywood sagged and you could see sags in the roof after their workmanship warranty was up. This was a track home builder. So they would build, you know, 90 to 110 homes a year. 
and all they cared about was the lowest price possible. Well, when you drive through those tracks, even now, you can see every single one of those sheets of plywood has a belly in it. Now, it looked fine when that first homeowner bought it, but do you think the curb appeal factor lowers the property value of that home when they're going to resell it? Well, right now, inventory is so low, would it really affect anything if the roof isn't leaking? Probably not. But when it becomes a buyer's market and sellers are desperate to sell, do you think there would be a concession because the roof is saggy and, and just looks terrible? I think there probably would be. I'm pretty sure it's actually happened. It's been a while, but I'm pretty sure it's happened. So they value engineered the value out, but it added value to them because their workmanship warranty is 12 months. So once somebody signs that dotted line and takes possession of that house, you get a leaky faucet, a leaky toilet, leaky roof, whatever it happens to be, the builder's on the hook to come in and fix that labor and materials. Once that's over, it's whatever the manufacturer's warranty, if you can find proof that that is the specific product. Like, good luck identifying the siding on your house 15 years down the line. Building materials companies just don't maintain the exact same product, typically, in the exact same configuration for that long. Like, the warranty might be 30 years. Number one, it's going to depreciate after say five to seven, typically, sometimes it's sooner, sometimes it's, it's, it's later, but good luck actually matching that product. Like you're not going to be able to, if something goes wrong, you have an insurance claim, whatever, anybody who's ever lived through this knows they have to basically fight to get the entire visible section covered by the insurance company because you can't match it, whether it's because of fading, because they don't sell that particular product anymore, the wood grain change, the Color's a little different. The sheen is a little different. Like, just a ton of things that go into building materials that people don't think about. But the reality is that anything after the first 12 to 24 months is going to be on the owner of that home, regardless of whether there was a manufacturer's warranty or not. I mean, half the manufacturer's warranties out there aren't transferable anyway. So the builder buys the product, puts it in the house. It's a non-transferable warranty. So if the builder calls to say, hey, I need this part, the assumption is going to be the builder still owns that and it's still covered. Joe homeowner calls up and says, hey, I got this part, serial number, blah, blah, blah. If it was registered, it probably wasn't registered to them. If it wasn't registered, you got a 50-50 chance of them honoring the warranty. Because they're going to want proof of purchase. Does a homeowner have proof of purchase for a faucet? For shingles on a roof? No, they don't. So it's going to be a he said, she said, and good luck getting any money out of it. And when they do give it to you, it's going to be materials only, not labor. So in a lot of cases, it's not even worth pursuing because the labor is the more expensive part. Anyway, I got off on a tangent. My apologies. And this might happen more often, so I'm going to apologize in advance. So the quiet part out loud is how do you control, as an operator of properties for income, how do you control these incentives that have been rolled out 
since the dawn of construction, how do you incentivize or remove the incentive to just put the cheapest possible thing into these apartments or into these spaces? I've seen flippers, and no offense to flippers, I know a ton. I know a ton of people who flip, who wholesale, who property manage, who do you know, renovations themselves in-house, operate crews, hire crews out. They don't care what they use. So you can buy a turnkey flip that's being advertised as turnkey for a rental, ready to go. And it'll have laminate floors. What happens the first time a laminate floor gets wet? swells up like a balloon and the picture of the wood that's stamped on top of it peels off or wrinkles pushes against the walls it pushes against you know cabinets it just it's it's hot garbage and yet in 2023 we still see people using it why because it's cheaper than a good lvt and it's definitely cheaper than an engineered hardwood well, what's the difference between an engineered hardwood and a laminate? A laminate is literally cardboard, press board, glued together with a picture of wood grain stuff put on top. It may be actual wood grain. It might be a very thin layer of wood with a finish on it. But nine times out of ten, it's a printed picture of wood and a pattern and maybe a texture with a coating on top to protect it from wear and tear from physical stuff. But because it's a pre-finished floor, the first time you spill something on it, it leaks down underneath. And then that leak sits on the, the subfloor and soaks into your flooring, and it makes it swell and fail. Engineered flooring, it's actually a very thick, you know, like quarter inch, maybe a little more, of hardwood slab hardwood which is then applied using special glues and a lot of force to a very resilient plywood base not cardboard and even though it may be a pre-finished product sometimes it can come unfinished so you can put a finished coat on top of it but anyway long story short they're apples and oranges so i'm not talking about engineered hardwood i'm talking about laminate junk cardboard press board and it's the same thing with you know mdf base mdf shoe the the biggest difference is that typically your your baseboards and your trim in your house that are going to be mdf aren't going to get direct exposure to water spills because they're not laying flat on your floor right if you have a flood they're probably going to fail but so is the prime finger jointed pine or whatever that you would have had there anyway would have had to been ripped off and, and replaced. So it's it's six of one, half a dozen of another in that case. But for flooring, it's a complete joke, yet it's used all the time. You know, very, very similarly, we see very inexpensive, low-quality paints that are very hard to touch up, that are almost transparent in some cases, depending on how they're applied and who applies them, being used for rentals. And then, you know, you get a spot on the wall from somebody moving in, and on your move-in inspection, you know, it's there. You offer to fix it. You end up having to repaint an entire wall 
instead of being able to just touch up one spot. So the stuff that goes into these units does matter, right? Chasing the race to the bottom for that bonus, for that, you know, that project manager, you need to put things as an owner. If you're involved in this type of project where you're hiring a GC to build for you, or you're hiring a subcontractor to come in and turn units, and you're doing, you know, labor and materials, because we're into a whole different conversation with the, the owner of the building or the owner of the property buying the materials, because then there's no incentive for the builder or the contractor to reduce waste. All right, it's not unusual for a home builder to buy the framing package and supply that for the framing carpenter that's going to actually stand the house up, right? They're just there as labor. And there's things you can do from an inspection standpoint to make sure that they're not generating too much waste and to hold them accountable, you know, in their final payment for that. How do you hold somebody accountable when stuff starts failing that they bought three, four, five, six years ago? And it's failing, you know, extremely prematurely because it's the wrong product or a inferior product to what could have been used that should have been used, right? You can, you can do a specification sheet that spells out exactly what the products are. Builders and contractors hate that because they can't use the supply chain and the vendors and the relationships that they've already got in place unless that product is available everywhere. And if you do or equivalent in the specification, that means that they get to shop around and the definition of or equivalent changes drastically because just because there's a product out there that works for a purpose and looks similar doesn't mean that it performs long term in the same way. You can buy product A and use it and it'll work for four years and then it has a catastrophic failure that requires repairs or maintenance or costs extra money to operate in utilities or, or uh, water or sewer or whatever. Or you can have the better product that costs more, that is a stable product for, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, depending on what it is. And it looks the same and just costs a little bit more at the beginning of the project. But we're incentivizing bad behavior by paying people bonuses based on the race to the bottom. And it's a, it, it's a, super widespread problem because you'll see this whole RFP, RFQ soliciting bids. I want three GCs and three subcontractors and three material bids. And there's no if, ands, or buts when it comes to relationship, to value, to um, partnering and innovating with your vendors. There's just we just need to get this job and be cheaper than everybody else. And if our service is terrible, oh, well, they got what they paid for. There's not enough margin in there for us to babysit this project. We're going to drop ship stuff and it's going to get there when it gets there. And uh, if they don't like it, oh, well, you know, and, and the worst part is that 
now COVID, the pandemic, basically gave everybody a pass on logistics and transportation because of the supply chain disruptions that made the news every 30 seconds. And they're still using it today. And while, yes, there are still some supply chain snafus and, and hiccups that are impacting building materials and construction, a lot of companies now just default to the supply chain issues as the root cause of their lackluster service delivery when it might be that they're looking to save money and so they'll get to it when they get to it because it's more affordable to do so than to deliver the same level of customer service they were delivering prior right we see it with these box stores on the building materials side where over 50 percent of the employees in a building now are part-time there's no skin in the game for them there's no incentive for them to take care of the customer because it's just another part-time job it's not a career some of the stuff is very technical and it's not something that your average joe is going to be able to give a good answer to like i love it when i hear people with horror stories from going to a hardware store or a big box store and being told you know something simple like window glazing old homes Historical homes use window glazing to keep the window panes in from the outside. Literally heard someone the other day tell a customer that they could just use white caulk. I guess you could. It's probably going to be a bad day in about a year, but yeah, you could, you could probably caulk it, I guess. I don't know. It's the wrong product. The guy didn't even know what window glazing was. Like they still sell it. It's on the shelf. It's in a different area. But it's there. So just, you know, interesting little tidbits of bad info that comes from having people that do whatever for a living. And it's just another part-time job. And they've never really worked in the industry. Or if they did, they swung a hammer. For a few years, but you don't need to be a technical genius to swing a hammer. You don't need to know how paint works or what window glazing is. It doesn't qualify you as an expert for those particular things. If you want to tell somebody you work as a framer for 25 years, even on super high-end homes, you want to tell somebody how to frame a house or how to, you know, frame out a window or a door or, you know, uh, do sheathing or, or any of that kind of stuff, you are probably qualified to do so, even if you were just a laborer. Because you have to cut and measure and carry and stack and you're going to absorb over time how it's supposed to look and what's what it's supposed to do and, and hopefully why you're doing what you're doing. But if you're going to give somebody advice on how to paint a wall, it's like having an electrician replace your faucet on your sink instead of a plumber, right? Like, I don't, I don't get it. But anyway, back to the topic. The race to the bottom is probably the worst thing out there for the industry as a whole because it costs my customers, I've seen it personally, for years. And it's part of the reason why I do what I do now, honestly, because it creates a huge amount of construction waste and just all sorts of bad things for the environment. It costs a ton of money to repair and deal with and maintain. 
and it's, you know, it's a pet peeve of mine, like I said at the beginning of the show, that people are still participating in the race to the bottom. And the only way to change it, the only way I can see to change it is going to be to stop accepting it as the norm. Right? You can't do labor and materials. We already talked about the, the, the risk of loss and theft and all the other stuff. Um, if you're buying materials and not letting the contractor own that part of the process, there's going to be shrink. Loss of value, loss of product, loss of time, whatever it may be, if they're not responsible for the product. The only way I can see to fix the problem is to have very specific product specifications with no substitutions allowed in the contract for the actual spec. The problem is that people don't do what I do every day. Even architects and designers have no idea what the useful lifespan or what the maintenance impacts are of those products after they're installed in a unit for its intended purpose. Like, you can have conversations with your architect and your designer about useful life and resilient products. The downside is that the useful life and resilient products that they recommend and know about are the ones that the vendor reps show up and train them on in a lunch and learn and that are in the libraries and in the UL guides online. They don't actually have firsthand experience with the lifespan of usable products or how it fits into the lifespan of an apartment building because that's not their job. They're involved in the very front section, this big, little tiny, little tiny section of, of time that the project is being built. And then they're done. They're paid when the project is complete or maybe before, and their involvement ends. Like they don't even get warranty calls because it's not their problem. All the stuff that they recommend in the library and they put into the designs were approved by the builder and maybe by the customer depending on exactly how that relationship was set up at the beginning of the project. So the real question is, or I guess the real point is, less than a question, you need to bring products that you know are functional and that have a longer useful life and more resilience to your builder and to the architect to say, this is what you are going to use come hell or high water. And if you don't like it, I will hire someone else to do it. And why is the, the quiet part out loud? Because it's a gap that's existed since the dawn of time in construction. As long as I've been involved and I started working in the industry in 1997. And it still exists today. And there's no good answer for it. Because they want to own the, the, the products, they want to own the relationships, and they want to find ways for them to save money. So if you're going to do this and you're going to dictate exactly what gets used and in what way, they're probably going to charge you more money for the inconvenience of, of having to, you know, basically lose margin in an area where they would get their bonus. So I don't know if that's the right answer. I don't know if anybody else has answers. Email me podcast at tcomethod.com. Let me know what you think. Am I, am I just making this up? Is this not a problem everybody sees? Do people just not care? Is it just a part of a cost of doing business? Because I know that unexpected 
expenditures like having to replace an entire floor in a rental because the tenant decided to spill water or had a leaky faucet is probably not going to help your NOI numbers at all. I guess if you can write it off as an insurance expense and your insurance doesn't skyrocket because of it, maybe you'll be okay. But one way or the other, there's a cost that's going to impact your business from a failure that happens prematurely, whether it's a leaky faucet that costs you extra money on your water and your sewer, whether it's a light fixture that needs to be replaced prematurely because there's no bulbs in it to replace because you, for whatever reason, decided that an integrated LED was the right answer for that project. Maybe it's something, you know, a little bit more technical, like you decided to have concrete stampcrete walkways put in this nice place that's an Airbnb. And then the property maintenance people decided to just throw rock salt on it and it completely crumbled after a year because it wasn't sealed properly. Like any, anything can happen in this industry. And I guess everybody involved in the process should have a fiduciary duty to extend the useful life of it for as long as possible. But there's no incentive to do that on the construction side, on the architect side, on the um, implementation side at the beginning of the process. It's the people who operate the property later that are stuck with that. And it just becomes a part of overhead. And I guess if it's an outside property management company that doesn't own the actual place, it creates work for them to charge more than the 8%, 10%, whatever of gross rents that they're getting to, to maintain and operate that property. So there's, there's a few different levels that change has to happen on, and I don't know how to do it. I don't. I've been in this industry forever. It's very slow to adopt change, and it's even slower to change something when they've been getting paid and incentivized through their pay structure to step over the dollars to pick up the pennies at the beginning phases of a construction rental project. So let me know your thoughts. That's all I got for today. Uh, it will be the 16th of May when this comes out, Tuesday. First episode live on Apple Podcasts. So please like, subscribe, leave me a comment, share it, let your friends know. It's out. It'll be out everywhere, but it'll be the first day it's on Apple Podcasts. Please go there, leave a comment, leave a reply, tell me you think I'm a dummy, tell me that the industry will change, tell me that the industry won't change, give me an opinion. I love to hear it. I love to have in-depth conversations about technical stuff like this. And uh, I appreciate your time. Talk to you next time on the TCO Method.